divine abiding in joy and divine abiding in equanimity. These these two qualities complete the the four Brahma Viharas, Brahma Vihara, Metta, Karuna, Murita, and Upeka. When we intentionally practice them, we're learning to take rest. We're learning to find the kind of rest and relaxation that the connection of metta and only the connection of metta can provide. And to take that deep and profound rest of, of care and protection that only the compassion, the karuna, brahma-vihara can provide. And to take that deep, we wake up, rest and relaxation in pure, unbridled joy. This appreciative consciousness and awareness that only this mudita, brahma-vihara, can provide. And taking rest in that wide mind-heart of balance, equanimity, the serenity, deep, peaceful serenity that's attuned to things as they are, that only the upeka brahma-vihara can provide. So we've been learning to find our sanctuaries, our safe harbors, refuge. And when Michelle explained about bowing yesterday, you you see you see it all the time in Asia, in um, India and South Southeast Asia, on different levels. You see people do it, and you'll feel that they just are really doing it out of respect um, for their ancestral and teaching lineages. When you see it in monasteries, you can f- feel um, viscerally. You can feel it as a practice. You can feel people are genuinely taking refuge when they bow to what's called the triple gem, the awakening power within that the word Bud means, or Buddha. And Dhamma means the liberating truth. And Sangha, the close, compassionate community of like-minded ones. It's a powerful sense of refuge and and of uh, literally aligning our our heart, our consciousness with with our aim, the aim to draw in, draw out these powers of divine abidings, and draw out the liberating wisdom within. You know, Dhamma has these various meanings of the truth, of universal nature. Uh, uh, liberating wisdom. It's just a Pali word, Dhamma. But it it implies, as also as Michelle was saying yesterday, a truth regardless of religion and philosophy and belief systems. Dhamma is whether or not there are Buddhas. And when Siddhartha Gautama was born, there was no Buddhism. There were many forms of um, 
practices Jainism and various Hinduism traditions uh, still long before uh, Islam and Christianity. And he himself, as I was saying yesterday, was was a rebel, a rebel against convention and um, imposed belief systems and philosophical um, dogmas and the hierarchy of religion in those days held, you know, in, in the, like in the Brahmin class, you inherited spiritual authority, didn't earn it. And, and that was part of what she, you know, he felt there's a truth beyond language and beyond belief systems, beyond religions. And that's what, that's what took him on his path, arduous path and first body denying and then body balancing and, uh, and the approach of the middle path balanced body, emotions, and mental faculties. So how can this be? You know, what is this? Where is this truth that is pointed to uh, by many of the practicing living wisdom traditions? In the 60s set a lot of us on fire in that way, and uh, I spent uh, six years in Hawaii and in, on the mainland and in Asia, trying all kinds of practices. In fact, many of them came through Hawaii as a crossroads, many of the Asians. My first teacher in the 60s was a Tai Chi, was a martial artist and herbalist, Su Yao Pang, and, and he taught these various forms uh, called Ying Yi and Pa Kwa and Tai Chi, and, and they all came out, you know, in the years that I, would, I, I was with him. I first went with him to learn... The, the martial art of Pa Kwa and, and Ying Yi. And only when I was sick did I learn he, he knew acupuncture and herbs because then they came out. You know, and then a year later, other arts that he had, he had known, he came from China with. Uh, and he, in a way, was my first teacher because he'd see me studying all these books, you know, on mysticism and Christian contemplative practice and East Asian contemplative practices and whatnot. And I carried them around, you know, kind of proudly and wanted them to see and notice me and so forth. And then I was once showing him this book by Sri Aurobindo, this great Indian saint. And uh, so he looked interested and he was looking at what I was showing him and I don't remember what it was what I was trying to get him to comment on, but in a moment, he just turned his head in a quizzical way and caught my eye, you know, in that way I've been talking about, and a mentor who, who sees our goodness even long before we know we have it. And he said, he just said, um, the word, the Indian word, Hindu word, moksha, is a word for liberation. He just looked at me, he caught my eye, he said, there is no moksha. And I was so excited about this passage on liberation. He said, there is no moksha, there's only now. And I put my books down, you know. I didn't stop reading them or collecting them, but it helped me approach the search in a different way. And it uh, was followed by uh, my first Hawaiian teacher. She was uh, trained in the kahuna tradition, but uniquely she also traveled to India and and learned from my uh, Hindu tradition and especially a Buddhist tradition. So she combined you know, the elemental spirituality of Polynesia and Hawaiian um, intuitive knowing, elemental knowing, 
and nature, way, nature's way of knowing our spiritual core, with, uh, with what she would bring back from Asia. Uh, and she, you know, she was just a source, an embodiment of, of some of these Brahma-viharas, especially metta and mudita, joy. And, and I was telling a yogi today um, that another teacher, a third teacher, I met her when she was 90 years old. And she was a you know, Southern California Christian mystic. And she was just who she was. She was, just a, she was an entity of her own, you know. Uh, I met her when she was 90 and I was her student until she was 97. I just remember the power and clarity of her blue eyes and how she felt the whole universe would come right through her windows at night alone to show her the truth of things. You know, her attunement, her sort of cosmic attunement. So she was really unique. And, you know, eventually I came across this um, Vipassana tradition from Burma. Uh, And the reason why it instantly felt like a, a root living practice tradition for me, the reason I felt at home with it is because it didn't deny anything else that I had been, and, or anyone else I had been studying with or about. It seemed to integrate it all, synthesize it all, and, and um, validate it all in, into a very powerful, um, practical, um, and immediate way of understanding, of bringing all this out of the intellect you know, and into a, a vivid feeling understanding. So that was that, you know, and I never turned back once I found this particular lineage. It was years before I met the um, uh, one of the main uh, heirs or lineage holders, Mahasi, who was my teacher's teacher because of the difficulty of getting in, into Burma. But still, I just, I practice, as I've mentioned before, with friends who, who knew who knew the technique and how, how to teach aspects of the practice until I until I um, stumbled upon my teacher, you know, not really looking for a teacher. So it's it's a, it's valuable to you know appreciate that it's not in the language. the The Pali words that we're using are so because, like Hawaiian, you know, it was a it was a living oral tradition it was never put down in words until centuries and centuries later. So Pali was a vernacular, spoken vernacular, in the area where Gotama, the Buddha to be, lived, and then, and then it was memorized by these brilliant nuns and monks around them who had like this capacity for photographic memory, detailed memory, and and, and why um, if you study some of the discourses or suttas you see the they come in cadence and repetition. It's a way of holding that memory. It was three or four centuries of transmission in oral manner. We, before they began scribing them down, they take a pointed piece of metal and put it in a fire and burn in letters in, on palm leaves in Sri Lanka. And that's why you, you see, even today, the Sri Lankan script, Burmese script, is rounded. You know, because if you had tried to make straight lines, it would cut, rather than going you know, to make the the more indelible 
circular types of script. If we get that, you know, it, it helps us sort of sidestep um, potential blockages from, from the familiar. Like we often use the, the poly words just because there's not an adequate word or, you know, there's just a lot of association with the word metta or the word, uh, or, I mean, the word love or joy, where the, the meaning is quite profound. And it takes quite an articulation of, poetic cluster of wording, you know, and and delivery to make sense in English of what's of the potency of what's meant in Pali. You know, for example, there's twenty seven Pali words for desire. And and most of those desires are healthy desires. And we hear teaching so much about, you know, non attachment and desires that cause the suffering and whatnot. It's so simplistic. And throws us so off because both the word for dukkha, you know, means so much more than suffering, as Michelle was saying last night, and and uh, and desire is only a few entangling desires, or what I call insatiable desires, desires that just keep feeding on themselves. It's never enough, you know. And rather than filling legitimate needs. It's just a cycle of neediness that's never fulfilled. A cycle of wanting that just makes more wanting. There's just a few of those kinds, and the, the Buddhist teachings point to them so that we can understand them. We can feel that, that thirsting in the body and the difference between the kind of thirsting that can never be quenched and the kind that can. Yeah. The desire for liberation, the desire for unconditional love, to be love and be loved that we've all had from time immemorial and all our ancestors before us is quenchable. Otherwise, as the Buddha said, he wouldn't have taught what he found. You know, if, if, the, if, if there wasn't a freedom beyond just the cycle of, of desire and entanglement and then more desire and more entanglement, if there wasn't a, a, a perfect peace, you know, a perfect connected non-attachment uh, and a path to that, a middle path to that, a balanced one. He wouldn't have taught this. He wouldn't have taught these teachings. An, an example I love to give about the, the restorative nature of our practices, that is how we just create the space for it, it happens. And if we're lucky, it happens if we don't read a single wise word from a book or hear anything from a tape or if there's no teachers in front of us. And then an example came from a good friend of mine. He's an Australian monk. Um, And he was a hippie traveling around Southeast Asia in the 70s. And around 1977, he was in southern Thailand and expressed a desire to meet his friend's teacher, his Thai friend's Thai teacher, Ajahn. Ajahn is a name for a respected teacher in Thailand. And his friend kept saying, okay, let's go, we'll go, I'll take you. You know, but it was always tomorrow. My friend was a little nervous. He had long hair and he saw that, you know, the monks had no hair and wore these strange dresses and stuff. And he thought, wait a minute, you know, do I really want to be face to face with 
you know, what felt quite intimidating and attractive at the same time. But finally, he said, okay, you know, we'll meet in the morning at 8 or 7, 7 in the morning, it's appropriate time after they do the alms, alms rounds. Um, but he woke up early and kind of snuck out of his guest house thinking he'd go down to the beach and escape another, you know, opportunity to meet the, uh, his friend's teacher. But his friend knew him pretty well by then. So he was there <laughs> waiting for him and took him to the, to the Wat. The Wat is the Thai word for temple. It was one of those water drop connection meetings, you know, instant connection, reciprocal kind of recognition, teacher to student, student to teacher. He stayed. Before long, he ordained as a novice, you know, like a young monk, um, where you don't take all the rules yet and just sort of learn the ways of the uh, uh, the monkhood and you know how to wear the robes and whatnot, how to behave and show res- respect and just some basics. And then in a year, he took a full ordination. And then he began, you know, sort of seriously following the way. You wake up at 3.30 and you go, go on alms round at dawn and just start to follow uh, and internalize this ancient 2,600-year-old tradition. And then he began being interested in meditation. People would come by. This is a, a popular Wat back in those days. And people would drop by and he started to hear of this famous teaching monk, Ajahn Buddhadasa, in, the, in another Wat up north, Wat Swan Mok, where I had spent some months myself a few years later. Okay, he started to hint to his teacher that he wanted to go vi- visit this province or this Wat was, although he didn't mention the Wat or the teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He just said, I'd like to go to Suratani and I think your family, you have family there. Perhaps I could bring them some gifts or presents, you know. And, you know, monks often don't say anything. They just, he just heard that and went on with his business and he mentioned it a second time. And then the proverbial third time, he suggested he go to Suratani province and take some gifts for his teacher's family. His teacher looked at him and said, Tejadamo, that's his name. Tejadamo, what do you want? <laughs> and he said, well, I want, to, I want to go and learn meditation. She said, well, why didn't you tell me? It's like after a year of the monster. <laughs> you know, we'll meet tonight at the old Teak Dhamma Hall. And here's the keys, you know, for the gate. We'll be by ourselves since it's an old, you know, sacred meditation hall. So at six, Tejadama was there and excited, ready to learn meditation. And they went in, and they were the only ones in this beautiful old silent hall. hall. And they sat from six to eight o'clock, and not a word was spoken. Eight o'clock, you know, teacher got up and um, they locked up. And every night, that's what they did for two years. <laughs> no instruction. And Tejadamo said, you know, after a while, you just go through it all. 
You just see it all, you know, and you get bored with your own boredom and you get, you get uh, tired of your restlessness and you just somehow overcome your doubts and, you know, like the mind knows how to regenerate itself. The heart knows how to come into stillness by itself. It needs no religion. It needs no language. It really needs no verbal teaching. I mean, that's how the Buddha did it. After first getting a lot of teachings and excelling at them, and then being asked to teach with the teachers he was with, and they were all powerful practices uh, and generative of very subtle, nuanced states of consciousness. You know, John is like what they call cosmic consciousness or God consciousness or what or whatnot. But he felt it wasn't completely free. He still felt ego in there, identification. He didn't feel really the end of the roots of greed, hatred, delusion. And so that's when he, you know, looked for another way. And as you call as you recall, he remembered how when he was just a boy, that fresh, joyous oneness. And he felt like only from happiness, you know, can we we enter that state of knowing, that deep state of knowing beyond personality, beyond life and death. So of all the kind of teaching stories, this one to me evokes like what I finally got from my teacher after getting really good instruction and I trusted him so much, uh, like I'd never trusted anyone before, so I just did everything he said. And you know, honed, honed all the ways of practice and, and uh, you know, moving through the different capacities to understand body, feelings, mind, and phenomena, and senses, and so forth. And then one day I came in for an interview, and his instruction before I left was two words. Do nothing. And my response, you know, was panic and <laughs> okay well uh, should I just go back to the breath you know or just abide you know in this loving kindness or the the senses or, and whatever I said his response was do nothing and it was about three days of that when I'd come in I'd been trying to do nothing I was just <laughs> dragging my you know <laughs> ragged tears and coming in and he just said, looked at me and just said, you know, hold on to nothing. And finally, I just, I got it, you know, and I just sort of, I let go of everything. At a point, you let go of the teachings, the teacher, the tradition, just let go of everything, the whole system, you know, all the, the package that comes that, with teachings, of course, we're lucky to have these instructions. And without them, and without the ordained sangha of nuns and monks who have transmitted, memorized and transmitted these into the time of writing, and you know, who takes such great care and respect uh, to protect uh, original teachings in a time when they're so easily assimilated and they just start to spread out and get diluted in culture and they become items unto themselves. You know, in many cases, quite helpful. All the ways mindfulness is used in our culture, really quite helpful. But out of the context of the liberating path, um, 
it's very different. You know, mindfulness uh, in pain clinics is essential for people to learn to live with sort of incurable pain. But mindfulness in the context of a of the path of liberation and understanding and transcending, going beyond the the known, you know, is very very different, and it attracts other powerful, associated, skillful states, which include these four Brahma-viharas. Joy is one of the most crucial ones because it has to do with that part of ourselves that feels bereft of, of having our goodness mirrored. You know, all our issues of unworthiness, self-loathing, uh, not being good or good enough, and not being valued, uh, are, are, are the first thing that this joy starts to, to feed. Um, far enemy of joy, envy and, and jealousy. You know, envy is when we don't want someone to have what they have, and jealousy is wanting to have what they have. And that is what's rooted in feelings of, of unworthiness and, and uh, worthlessness. When we start to kind of open up to this pure joy that's a, that abides within us, we start to give it some space, and we start to feel safe enough to let it emerge and have a, the feeling tone of it in the body. It's one of the first. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.